Welcome to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And this week we are doing I Shot Andy Warhol. Based on the true story of Valerie Solanus, who was a 60s radical preaching hatred towards men in her scum manifesto. Yeah, so 1996. This is a wild movie. This is a complicated film. For a lot of reasons. Um, so the subject matter isn't without controversy. The film takes place in 1967, 68. It was made in 1996, and we're watching it here in 2019. And in each of those moments, the message has its own specific connection within that period. Yeah, so there's there's just a lot happening. And so, yeah, this one's hard. This one's really hard. We're going to start off with why we're watching this. Yeah. It's it's a lady director film. Well, that. Which, that's the theme we're going with. I actually owned this one, which is a little strange, mm-hmm. because it is a very small movie. I don't have any budget listed for it, but it only made $1.8 million. This is a tiny, tiny art house flick. Mm-hmm. I first saw this movie when I was about 12 or 13 which is super young to see a movie like this. Ooh, yeah. I have no information. And it was playing on PBS, and I must have woken up in the middle of the night or I couldn't sleep or something. It was on PBS. All the other channels were like had signed off for the night. And so this was on, and I just remember being like, I know there's this is not a movie that I should be watching, but I'm going to. <laughs> I just remember being fascinated with this movie, and I didn't really understand why. And we didn't really have the internet yet, but this movie kind of started my slight fascination with Andy Warhol. I can understand that. Yeah. I mean, I I knew nothing of the movie other than you mentioning it. And then as we got into it a little bit, there were little flashes, maybe from having seen Factory Girl mm-hmm. and also just like in general, knowing a little bit about the Velvet Underground and how they connected with Warhol scene and all that, and mm-hmm. knowing some of the names and things like that. I was like, okay, I kind of remember a few of these key points. Yeah. But I never knew this specific story. Yeah. So the crux of the movie is our main character, Valerie Solana, shot Andy Warhol. The bit about her from Wikipedia is that on June 3rd, 1968, she went to the factory where she found Warhol. She shot Warhol three times, the first two shots miss, and the third wounding Warhol. And then she also shot art critic Mario Amaya and attempted to shoot Warhol's manager, Fred Hughes, point blank, but the gun jammed. Solanus then turned herself into police, and she was charged with attempted murder, assault, and illegal possession of a gun. She was later diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, pleaded guilty to reckless assault with intent to harm, and served a three-year prison sentence, including treatment in a psychiatric hospital. And after her release, she continued to promote her scum manifesto. And she died in 1988 of pneumonia in San Francisco. Andy Warhol died in 1987 from complications of his gallbladder surgery. So initial impressions on this movie. Mm Mm-hmm. I have very complicated feelings about this movie as a result of seeing it. And it's taken a while to sort of process through a lot of that. Mm -hmm. I think ultimately the biggest issue that I've got is that it's hard to tell the line between whether this movie is supposed to be about her manifesto or her. So our director is also one of our writers. Yes. And our director 
originally thought to do this movie as a documentary, but she realized that there was almost no footage of Valerie Solanas to use in a documentary, so she decided to make it into a feature film instead. Right. So one of the things that I feel is a problem with this movie is particularly the writing, because there's no point of view and there's not a through line truly presented from the beginning to end. And I think that's because Mary Heron, our writer and director, approached it like a documentary. And, and in a lot of documentaries, you're supposed to let what you're capturing tell you what your through line is, tell you what the conclusions are supposed to be. You're not supposed to have this set in stone point of view when you're doing a documentary or you're, you know, if you, if you make the exact documentary you set out to, you didn't pay attention to anything that you filmed. Mm. That's that thinking. So I feel like that's a major problem with this film. I, I don't know. And I guess that's where my concern comes in is whether or not there actually was a very specific intent because the scum manifesto in 1996 sort of became a new radical way of envisioning feminism. And it, it had been radical in 1968 when Valerie proposed it, mm-hmm. but it became well-known in circles. And now, and we see this reflected in the movie, that manifesto, while I don't know that it was ever Valerie's intent, became one of the, the documents that built into what we would now know as turf ideology. And trans exclusionary ideology. So I'm really, I'm really made uncomfortable by this film. Of do we promote that, or are we just trying to view it and comprehend it? Hmm. And I don't know that we've got a clear answer on that, and can have a clear answer on it from this movie. No, this movie gets a little muddy on like what's the actual message. Yes, which is further. It's just complicated by the fact that I just don't think it's written very well. Yeah, I mean, the last thing we see in the movie is. Valerie telling us why bother go on living. Yeah. And you're like, this is what you want to end this movie on? Okay. So SCUM stands for Society for Cutting Up Men. Yeah. And Valerie's thesis point is that the Y chromosome that men have is an incomplete X chromosome. Mm -hmm. So basically they're a mistake and they shouldn't exist. So that's her whole thing. And it's just kind of like, well, that's a very interesting perspective Okay. <laughs> From a radical ideological standpoint, it becomes a great discussion point. No, totally. I like it's bonkers and I don't believe it at all, but I like the thought experiment of it. Yeah. I, I can I like, okay, yeah, I can follow you down this path a little bit, but like I don't believe you at all. And my caveat warning on this is I am a white cis male. Yep. yep I do not experience oppression in any form or fashion. Nope. I have a ton of privilege. You have all the privilege. <laughs> and, and I am viewing this through a lens of learning from other people, seeing arguments be made, and looking at this going, the path that this has led down and been used for really seems bad. Yes. And seems incredibly harmful. That's where I start to go, wow, I don't know where I want to stand on this movie because I agree with a lot of the points Valerie makes. Yeah. Men are pretty awful and are responsible for the lion's share of violence in our society. Yep. And masculinity has a lot to do with that. Yep. 
and we do get some history that Valerie was abused as a child and then she was definitely abused more and more as an adult. She worked as a sex worker to provide herself with food and shelter. She, It was like her personal code not to have like a job job. So like, I don't think she saw herself. Like, I don't feel she presented herself as like, I'm a sex worker. It was just like, this is just what I'm doing to get cash to get to the next day so that she can spend all day writing. And her ideology is, is, a, little, is a little confusing. Well, yeah. And, you know, I don't know that we necessarily conceptualize sex work in that way in 1967. No, definitely not. She would just been called a prostitute and that's it. And she is frequently in the film. <laughs> totally. We're trying to be a little more progressive because we are pro-sex workers. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So her all of her interactions with men are bad. So I understand like those are bad. So men are the worst. Get rid of all of them. Okay. And then, like And then she encounters this male who actually listens to her. Who finds her fascinating. Yes, because it's Andy Warhol. Yeah, he's just he he looks at her and is kind of, kind of just sees, "Huh, there's something to you that's fascinating and interesting." Yeah. So this movie has just got a lot of layers. And I think the biggest thing about this movie is that it can't be watched passively. You really have to watch this movie to analyze it. More so now than necessarily you even did when it came out. Yeah. So let's talk about our writers. We actually have four people credited under writers. Uh, We have Jeremiah Newton, who wrote the book that this movie is based on. He's the executor of the estate of Candy Darling. And so he wrote her biography. That's another story thing that I'm interested in mm-hmm. we have diane tucker is also listed as doing research for this film she's no other film credits then we have daniel minahan who wrote this and then also wrote series seven the contenders he is mostly known as a director he directed episodes of the l word six feet under deadwood gray's anatomy true blood game of thrones marco polo house of cards american crime story and he recently directed deadwood the movie so he has found a wonderful career in the wonderful world of prestige television. Of HBO and Showtime. If you are good at doing that stuff, you have a lifetime career set for you at this point. If you can make prestige TV, you're golden. <laughs> and then finally, Mary Heron, who's also our director, she wrote this. And then she wrote American Psycho, The Notorious Betty Page, she a couple short films, The Moth Diaries. And then also Dali Land, which is in pre-production right now. That's going to be a film about Salvador Dali. This is a shadow of the amazing idea she was able to come up with in American Psycho. American Psycho, I mean, that movie also fucked me up. I saw that in theaters when I was too young to technically see it in theaters. But also Christian Bale, forever and always. Well, and just the idea of like, that was a total douchebaggery bro-y book that she managed to find the way deeper layers of toxic masculinity in. This film definitely prepped her for that film very, very well. So, I mean, those are writers. I think the problem is that the people writing it aren't experienced in filmmaking, and they're trying to write a documentary. Yeah, I do think there is a level of, are you making a documentary or are you making a biopic? Pick one or the other, right? Yeah. And the other side of it is that it so beautifully portrays Candy Darling mm-hmm. that for a good chunk of this movie, I kept going, can we just hear Candy's story instead? And there is a documentary about Candy Darling that we have added to our list of things that we need to watch during our next documentary series. We don't know exactly when that's going to happen, but if you have a documentary you think we would enjoy, please send in your, your suggestions to us, MacintoshandMod at gmail.com or MacintoshandMod on Twitter. Yeah, like the writing sucks. Yeah, I would agree with you on that one. Directing sex. Director, Mary Heron. Before this, she directed the Late Show TV documentary and the Winds of Change documentary. 
After this, she directed American Psycho, a couple episodes of The L Word, Six Feet Under, The Notorious Betty Page, Big Love, the Anna Nicole Smith TV movie, a couple episodes of The Following, Graceland. She directed all the episodes of Elias Grace on Netflix and Charlie Says, which is the Charles Manson movie with Matt Smith playing Charles Manson. And then she will also be directing Dolly Land in the future. I mean... The direction is quite good. It's really good. I especially love how well she captures the essence of the moments we're in. The fact that, you know, she's in her room writing and we've got cigarette burns and burning the reels in between to melt into the next scene, showtime passing, Mm -hmm. or darkening everything in the room during the factory party and extending it so long so you feel the exhaustion of it. Mm -hmm. They're all on pills. They're all crashing in the middle of it. And you just feel that because it keeps going. She makes these really wise decisions that don't make sense in a conventional film, but with the script that she has makes a ton of sense why she's doing those things. And so I really like the the very specific choices that buck your expectations mm-hmm. of the movie. I think she got the griminess of the film really well. I really loved her use of black and white in the film, particularly when Valerie is reading from her manifesto. Yeah. I just I really love those pieces and I feel like those are the parts that are an homage to a, the documentary style without it being the documentary. Well, it's- and nothing feels clean ever. Even the nicest parts of the movie mm-hmm. still feel gross. Yeah. Because that was New York in 1967. Yeah. People people call New York dirty now and it's like, you have no idea. You have no idea. So like, yay, director. Good direction. Bad writing. Yeah. It's so weird how often that happens. Let's get to our cast because our cast is nuts. Woo. We start off with Lily Taylor as Valerie Solanus. We have previously talked about her on Say Anything. I love Lily Taylor. Mm-hmm. She's great. So before this, she was in Mystic Pizza, Say Anything in Rudy. After this, she went on to be in Ransom, Deadline, Six Feet Under, State of Mind, Public Enemies, Almost Human, Hemlock Grove, American Crime, TV. And she's got a bunch of stuff coming up. Oh, Six Feet Under. She was so great she's in. phenomenal. Oh, her and Peter Krause. Love them. Heron actually imagined Lily Taylor in the role of Solanus before casting her. This is a knockout performance. It really is. One thing I didn't say about the writing that is actually good is all of Valerie's ranting is very frenetic. And so not only does it have to be written out, but it has to be performed. And Lily Taylor knocks it out of the park because they believe her. The circular pattern of thinking that she has in those ranting too. Mm -hmm. Just the wildness of it, of of continuing to loop around the same thought over and over and over again. Yeah, Not being able to break out of that. It's just... It's captivating as heck. And then just to watch her continue to spiral out of control, wanting to help her, you sympathize with her the entire time. And I think the other real thing about it that's so interesting is even when she is in the documentary and reading the manifesto, it still feels like a real person. Yeah. She doesn't feel any less real than when she's in those grittier straight up acting scenes and that's just a testament to how well she embodied this character yeah no she's she's just phenomenal she's just she's not a caricature i don't feel like she's a poor imitation i really believe her i love it next we have jared harris as andy warhol which just blows my mind (laughs) it blows my mind he was so young before this he was in far and away and 
and Natural Born Killers and Tall Tale. After this, he was in Lost in Space, Igby Goes Down, Mr. Deeds, Ocean's 12, The Notorious Betty Page, Lady in the Water, The Riches, Sherlock Holmes, Game of Shadows, Fringe TV, Mad Men. That's where you all know him from. He was lame price. <laughs> the Man from Uncle, The Expanse, The Crown, The Terror. He was recently on Chernobyl, and right now he's in Carnival Row. He's just so good. So he has the opposite issue of Lily in that yes. he's got to portray somebody that everybody knows. Everybody knows him. He has such a bizarre personality. And I love that Jared played him very internal, very reserved. And that is different. You know, we did, we mentioned Factory Girl before. Guy Pierce plays Andy Warhol there. And there he seems like such a character, like a cartoon almost. And Jared's. Andy doesn't. Yeah, Warhol's been portrayed a few different times. And then, you know, he's there's tons of footage of him as himself. I think the thing is, is that Warhol was pretty well known to be kind of reserved and shy. Mm-hmm. He had a persona that he would play on camera to play into the art he created. Yeah, I mean, his whole thing with his wigs. Yeah. <laughs> but in person, he was much more reserved. Mm-hmm. And it is this beautiful portrait of somebody who is at once confident in what he's creating Mm -hmm. and at the same time somewhat insecure of all the people around him. Yeah. Like he's not willing to confront any awful behavior necessarily. Mm -hmm. These people just live here. And if they do something bad, he'll just kind of look to his assistants being like, can you get them out, please? Yeah. Somebody help me because I can't confront this. Or I don't want to. I don't want to deal with this. I just like I his whole directing the movie thing. It's just like he doesn't tell anybody anything. He tells his friend to tell everybody what to do, which I find obnoxious. It is obnoxious. I mean, and that's how he filmed everything that, you know, those six hour movies that he used to do that were literally just just be on camera mm-hmm. and eventually led to interesting stuff. But I mean, we're kind of in that phase of his career where he's figuring and honing that image. Mm-hmm. And so there's this level of insecurity in it that is really fascinating. Yeah. And it just makes him so much more human, which is all the more heartbreaking to watch him feel like he has to distance himself from Valerie. Yeah. It's perfect for this movie. Mm-hmm. Next we have, so this one's a little bit more of an Arpon, but I feel the need to mention him. It's Lothar Bluto, mm-hmm. who plays Maurice Gerodius, the publisher. Yes. I mentioned him. He doesn't have a huge role in the film, but I mentioned him because he was in Orlando. Yes, he was. He played the con. It took me a long time to figure it out. I was like, that's who that is. Though, looks kind of a dead ringer for Christian Bale. Very Christian Bale-y vibes. Not the hair, but like the suit and his facial structure is very similar to thin Christian Bale. Which made me go... Mary Heron, is that why you cast Christian Bale in American Psycho? No, she cast Christian Bale because he's amazing. It's true. He's never bad in a movie. Never. We haven't seen that Terminator movie. No, no, no. I didn't say he's not in bad movies. I said he is never bad in a movie. <laughs> Just like Meryl Streep. Meryl Streep is never bad. Yeah, he's he's Canadian. He's been in a bunch of stuff. With a lot of French titles that I don't know and I have no clue what they are. After this movie, he was in The Suicide solitude day three of the tv series 24 the tutors and vikings so he's doing fine he is very smarmy he's very smarmy but he's also a little bit charming because he just looks at valerie and goes 
what are you? He looks at her in a very similar way that Andy does, but he is more engaging with her. Yeah. And at the same time, he sees a mark. I mean, there's there's that con man quality. It is this real weird back and forth with him where on the one hand, you are charmed by him and you think maybe he could give her something. Mm. And then at the same time, the more you see him, the more you're like, this is not going to go well. Yeah. This is going to end real bad. And it's kind of both, Mm -hmm. which is a real weird way to set up that character. But I kind of like it. All right. Next, we have Stephen Dorff as Candy Darling. Before this film, he was on every television show known to man. (laughs) Uh, Family Ties, Married with Children, Roseanne, The Outsiders, What a Dummy, Rescue Me, Judgment Night. Like, he was... The boyfriend in Aerosmith's crying music video, Ooh. which is funny because we are going to be doing Clueless later, which features Alicia Silverstone, who is also in that music video. Say what? All of our movies keep getting connected in funny ways, and I love it. Eh. After this movie, he was in Blood and Wine, Space Truckers, Entropy, Zoolander, Deuces Wild, World Trade Center, Public Enemies, Immortals, The Iceman, True Detective, and then Deputy and something called 2020. Okay, so we know that Stephen Dorff being cast as Candy Darling is very problematic. It wasn't a good thing in 1996. It's not a good thing in 2019. Yeah. We know that. We're not supportive of that. No. We're going to talk about his portrayal of this character in this film, which is lovely. This is one of those times where I will sit and go, I want trans actors to play trans roles so that we can have those portrayals and have that opportunity. Mm -hmm. I am so glad that Stephen Dorff put the amount of respect and care into performing this role that he did. Mm-hmm. Because I think one of the really awful things that happens now is that we are now at a point where studios just keep doing it under the guise of we need a bankable star. Mm-hmm. And then we have really big criticisms of you know actors like Jared Leto, who a lot of people said in Dallas Buyers Club did not do justice to that character. Yeah. And did not actually give the amount of respect that was needed. It opens up the conversation of like, well, it should just go to the best actor. The best actor, regardless, it should just be whoever shows up in the room who's the best actor should get the role. I agree with that sentiment. However, trans people aren't being allowed in that room. No. That's the problem. Until everybody is allowed in the room, you can't, you can't play that argument. You just can't. No, and it's a cop-out to not allow people in the room. It it is. It's like, well, we need the bankable star. And it's just like, not in this role. You don't. You you don't ever. And also now, go fucking look at Pose. Go fucking look at Pose. That show's amazing. Those women are amazing. I love that fucking show. And I love everybody in it. And I follow them on Instagram and they're amazing. What I do really love is that every time he's on screen, Steven Dorff is doing his absolute best to completely inhabit and accurately portray this character Mm -hmm. to the best of his ability and with the utmost respect for who this person was. And that's not knowing anything about his process. You just feel it from the performance that's being given. I also feel like it's also Kenny Darling was written with a lot of respect. Yes, and that definitely is a huge part of it. And there's a scene where she's attacked by Valerie mm-hmm. in a very violent and triggering way. And she says really hateful, mean things to her. And then later, Candy is just, you know, she's lighting a candle for Andy. She's lighting a candle for Valerie because it's just like, she's been through a lot. 
she's writing to Andy, who is in the hospital Mm -hmm. for this gunshot wound or is still recovering and says, give her a call. She she's in pain and she needs people to help her. Mm -hmm. And it's so beautiful and full of grace to go. She violently attacked me as well. The portrayal that we get is that Candy fully understands that Valerie is not okay. Yeah. And this attack was about Valerie, not about Candy. It doesn't excuse the behavior, but it does give you the reason behind it. And that is very important when you are having interactions with people who suffer from mental illness. You need to understand what is happening so that you can understand where it's coming from. Okay, next I think everyone else just kind of falls into our pines. Our pines. Our pines. We've got Martha Plimpton as Stevie. We get Michael Imperioli as Landine. You know him from Sopranos. Mm-hmm. Jill, Very good. Jill Hennessy as Laura. She's from Crossing Jordan. So weird. I was like, I know who this is, but I don't know who it is. Donovan Leach as Gerard Malanga. He's just been in a ton of little stuff. Reg Rogers as Paul Morrissey. A lot of the dudes look a lot alike. This one, he was on Friends as the director. <laughs> <laughs> that's where I know him yeah, from. His voice is very distinct. Justin Thoreau as Mark. Out of left fucking field. So I was, when we were watching this movie, I was like, that guy looks like Justin Thoreau, but he doesn't have the hair and he doesn't have that very distinct V hairline because he's wearing this long wig. I was like, but ugh, he looks like him. And then I remembered that around this time, he was also on Sex in the City. I'm like, oh, maybe that's him because he was really young then too. So I looked it up. It's Justin Thrill. Next, we have Lynn Cohen, and she plays the hotel concierge. Lynn Cohen played Magda on Sex and the City. Mark Margolis as Luis Solanas, who plays Valerie's dad. And also, Dio. Dio. Breaking Bad. Gabriel Mann. He plays that clean-cut boy at the school. You have seen him in a ton of stuff. He has not aged a day. He was in Mad Men. He went riding with Betty. Oh. Yeah. And then Eric Mabius played Reverend. Revolutionary number two. He was on the L word for a lot of those seasons. So now we get into some of the trivia, which there's not a whole lot. John Cale of the Velvet Underground wrote the film score despite the bands protesting that he not. So I love the Velvet Underground. Mm-hmm. I really dig the band. John Cale is a hell of a composer. Mm-hmm. I mean, he really is, has written great, amazing music on his own and with other bands and stuff like that. A lot of the incidental music in this movie is fantastic. It's really tension building and kind of minimal. Mm-hmm. But the factory sequence, oh, it's so bad. Yeah. It's such a bad imitation of the Velvet Underground. Like, I really just wish they would have just gone to Lou Reed and said, can we please just use the fucking songs? And Lou Reed would have given them like five witty and vulgar retorts as to why that would not happen. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know... <laughs> It's it's very unfortunate that Lou wasn't on board just to use the Velvet's music because it would have played so much better. The filmmakers were given permission to reproduce some of Andy Warhol's paintings and silk screens for the set, but they had to be destroyed after filming. Fair, but also awesome. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. Like, it's really hard to do this film without using Andy's art. And to not actually be able to reproduce some of it. Like, it doesn't have to be, like, the big iconic stuff. But the things that you know are part of what he would do would just be impossible. And that's it. That is it. Yep. That's it. That's the movie. So what's a rating scale for this movie? I feel like Guns is way too dark. 
How many Mylar balloons? Oh, that's perfect. It that's is. a perfect rating scale. I love it. I love the Mylar balloons. I love them in the scene. I love when they let them go. Just, yeah. How many Mylar balloons? It's my movie. I'm going to go with a two. Wow. That is lower than I expected, but. It's a two because the writing is crap. Mm. Like, ultimately, the writing's crap. And the problematic things, like casting a dude to play a trans woman, really not i'm not happy with that i understand like at the time in 1996 we weren't having all those conversations publicly they were definitely happening not publicly but i I don't like it but lily taylor and jared harris are amazing and it is directed well so it's not a total crap movie but it's also not a movie that you can watch passively you do you have to be watching this engaged in it to analyze it see i don't think that downgrades a movie for me it it does for me that's fair. Because this is this is almost like my Kubrick rule. Like, I have to have a bunch of context to like your movie. It's a crappy movie. That's not true of this film. I have to really be careful about what I internalize from this movie. And so that makes me very cautious of it. So I would say that's not necessarily the fault of the creators of a movie. You should always be checking yourself on what you internalize. True, but that makes, in terms of, like, entertainment value, that downgrades it that's fair that's fair for me i don't know that i downgraded on that and i don't hate the writing i'm gonna go two and a half mostly because i can't decide whether i would go higher or lower okay on some days i would say this is lower because this movie propagates a way of thinking that if taken literally goes down a rabbit hole that you can't get out of Hmm. you dig a hole for yourself that's really dark and scary On the other hand, if you ask me on another day, I would say this is a really beautiful and sad but humane movie about trying to understand somebody. It feels a little like Monster in that way. Yeah. And so I think because it vacillates that way, I just go right down the middle with it. I agree it's got some severe problems with how it's written, and mostly for me in that it doesn't know what its message wants to be, Mm -hmm. and it needed to decide that so that we could evaluate it on those terms. But I don't feel like I can give it anything higher or lower than just straight down the middle two and a half. Okay. But it is a fascinating movie. It is. I would like to see it redone. At this point, I would love to see Candy Darling's story instead. I think that's the story I want to hear. I know it will also be haunting and sad in very many ways, but that's the story I'm far more interested in coming out of this movie. Yeah. Not that Valerie didn't lead a compelling and interesting and ultimately tragic life. But Candy is so much more interesting to me. Yes. And I I think that's the movie that needs to be made. Woo! Another tough go of an episode. Yeah. I mean, it shouldn't be lost on anybody that all of the films that we've done where it's a female director, the director is also one of the writers. It's hard to know whether we want to celebrate that or call it out for the bullshit institutional well it's just it's the bullshit that the only way women are being allowed to direct things is if they write them because yeah. it's like well well no dude wants to write this you know so of course a woman has to write this and if it's really considered truly good well a man has to direct it yeah and if it's not it's like oh, well i guess we'll let you do it because we don't really want to make this movie but we'll just make you go away and what's been nice is except for like one movie in this series mm-hmm. We have come to the conclusion that even if flawed, these were captivating, interesting stories. True. Like, I would say to a person, other than the kids are all right, which we've talked about all our problems with, they swung for the fences. 
But next week. Next week we're going we're gonna do our last film in the series and we're going to do uh, something a little bit lighter fare. It's a film that I've been trying to get David to see for years. It's one of my favorite. It's gonna be 1995's Clueless. Back on the high school drama train. It's great prep for our Riverdale coverage coming up soon. Choo choo. <laughs> Let's go talk about some new movies. Okay. All right, this week we saw Brittany runs a marathon. A young woman decides to make positive changes in her life by training for the New York City Marathon. This one was really good. I was surprised by how much I loved it and how much it got me. I think it's been surprising a lot of people. I feel about it the way a lot of people talked about Eighth Grade last year. It's an indie film. It's got a very strong message in it. and It feels good and it's also really funny. I would agree with that. It's a little stylistically different for me than eighth grade and didn't hit me in the same way that eighth grade really stunned me mm-hmm. with how like sort of real and verite it felt. And this movie is not meant to be that. So I'm not saying like it should aspire to be what Bo Burnham did because it's a different kind of movie. Yeah. I do think, you know, if I had one slight criticism of it, it does feel like it tries to hit some tropey beats every once in a while or just some we're going to do this by the book type of script, Mm -hmm. which is fine. If you notice it, sometimes that can be a little disconcerting. There are a couple of times where it feels like they were pulling into the tropes, but they did a good job with it. There's a lot of stuff about body image and just being a woman. And that's, you know, I'm not a small lady. Never really have been, and I've experienced everything that she's gone through. So yeah, well, you know, except for like I haven't trained to run a marathon, um, <laughs> not that. So yeah, it's it's really good. Oh, I can't remember his name now. Utkarsh Ambudkar. Yes, he's amazing. Oh uh, my god! Like I always have loved him, but he is he gets to shine so much in this movie. I love it. This could be a breakout movie for him. Well, it's a breakout movie for Jillian Bell. Obviously. She's great. She's going to be in the Splash remake with Channing Tatum, and I'm so excited. That's brilliant. But Utkarsh, I mean, for me, stole every scene that he was in, and is just brilliant. And again, they do that thing that we love where they take the trope, and they head right for it, and then they turn it on its head right Mm -hmm. before they get there. And they do it every single time. And that's beautiful. And it makes me want to go out and run and try to run a marathon. Next, we saw Ad Astra. Astronaut Roy McBride undertakes a mission across an unforgiving solar system to uncover the truth about his missing father and his doomed expedition that now, 30 years later, threatens the universe. This is a, It was a good movie. It really was a good movie. I feel like it's a good movie in spite of itself, maybe? If that makes sense. It does that thing that a lot of space movies do, where it gets a little too psychological in and of itself. Well, so, okay, for me, the first half of this movie kept feeling like Apocalypse Now in space. Hearing the plot synopsis, you can kind of guess where I'm headed with that. But then they lean real hard into daddy issues stuff. Mm -hmm. And by the end of the movie, you're kind of rolling your eyes. Mm Mm-hmm. I think what saves it are two things. One, it is gorgeous. It is beautiful. It is one of the best conceived ideas of a futuristic space environment in our own solar system Mm -hmm. that I've seen in a long time. 
I also really love that X of course takes place in the future that just the mundane nature of space travel is very comical to me, but also makes complete sense. They've conceived of what is both very Kubrick 2001 style idea of space, while at the same time marking all of the just boring day-to-day life crap that we're used to from it. Hmm. The other thing that really makes this movie sparkle is Brad fucking Pitt. I like Brad Pitt. Yeah. He's an attractive man, of course, but I have always found him to be a great actor. He's always being compared to, he's our generation's Robert Redford. Yeah. This is the best acting I've ever seen from him because it's completely different from anything I've seen from him ever. He's not hamming it up. He's not being charming. It's so different. So I truly believe all the hype, the Oscar hype from about him for this one. Yeah, I think the thing about him is that every time we see him, yes, they he's gloriously attractive. And then he's almost always doing some kind of quirky role with it. Yeah. Not like, always. There's like Troy where he's clearly beefcake in that movie. He's beefcake or like, you know, in Oceans 11 through 13, he's always eating full-on eating, not just chewing gum. Well, in Seven, he's kind of dirtbag. In Twelve Monkeys, he's, he's unhinged. Like, he's he's always trying to, like, subvert his attractiveness. There's some angle that they're putting on it. Which, you know, more power to him. I mean, he's he's an amazing actor. Like, let's not forget Legend of the Falls, where he's also just beefcake. <sighs> so pretty, I remember the long hair days. But in this, he is just playing a right-down-the-middle character and also brad pitt looks way better as a brunette i'm sorry he just does it works mm-hmm. especially especially with him aging it looks better on him i also love just over time we see him trying to deal with the pressure of the mission he's facing and how it ebbs and flows over time how he how he responds to mm-hmm. it that's not to give anything away but you see all of it in his face and in his performance and how he acts on screen and that's quite a feat for a guy that i think kind of tucks that away sometimes in his performances to go after more of a broad idea of a character. Yeah. I, I just, I really do believe the hype on this one mm-hmm. and it was, it was an enjoyable film. So yeah. Can recommend. See. All right. Until next time. Bye everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Facebook.